Good morning, everyone. Today's Bible reading comes from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 and 24 to 28. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king, and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Verse 24. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. As we continue in our series through the book of Daniel, We've now come to chapter 5, which is often entitled, The Writing on the Wall. And we're going to find a man in this passage who defies God. He sets himself up in rebellion against God. And we are reminded of what the Word of God says, which is that each one of us does the exact same thing. In our sin, every time we choose to do something wrong, something against God's holy law, we are defying him. And the Bible identifies that as the main issue with humanity, our defiance of the living God. As human beings, we consistently choose to try to go our own way, and Belshazzar is a wonderful example of this, 
and of what you and I might do if we were given almost unlimited power and resources as he had. And what we'll learn from his life, and especially these last few moments of his life, is this lesson. You cannot defy God with impunity. You cannot defy God with impunity or without a severe cost. And we pick it up in verses 1 to 4 where we see the king's arrogance and his destructive behavior on full display. And we'll see him commit four specific acts against God. First of all, he desecrates what's sacred. Look back at verses 1 to 4. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Notice what is about to happen. He's about to repeat something twice. And any time in the Old Testament, you, of course, wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it two times. And if you wanted to give it the most emphasis possible, three times. Here he repeats something twice. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold, the silver, the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that his, uh, he, the king, and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We've already noted several times in the first few chapters of this book how important these vessels from the temple are. These vessels represent values, value of the one true God for the Jewish people because these, value, these vessels were to be used only to worship him at the temple. But we've seen Nebuchadnezzar not give them nearly as much value, and now Belshazzar is going to give them even less. He is going to desecrate what is sacred or holy and committed only to God. You remember in Daniel 1, the vessels were clearly meant to express to us this disparity between the Babylonians and these four men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. They were committed to one true God, but the Babylonians were not. And what is helpful to understand in order to understand these first four verses and all that happens in this chapter is that just six to ten days before what happens here, Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian Empire, had taken his vast army and had destroyed, in a major battle, the entire Babylonian army. And over the last few days, he had set up all of the rest of his army around the city and the capital of Babylon, and he had begun to lay, lay siege to it. And so, Belshazzar, even though his capital city is under siege, even though his father, Nabonidus, who is the full king, we might say, is surrounded in his sort of holiday villa where he lived most of his life, even though he's surrounded and cut off, even though his entire army has been destroyed, even though the capital city is now surrounded, what does Belshazzar do? He throws a feast for a thousand of his most loyal followers, his lords, perhaps thinking his stronghold of Babylon is impregnable. Certainly it had been up to that point for many years. Additionally, the text tells us that his wives and concubines were there. Notice it says that twice. That's important because this broke all protocol. This is not how you would typically throw this type of party. And we see a, a contrast to this in Esther when something very strange happens where the king says, bring in my wife to show her off to all these people in this drunken party that he was throwing. 
and his wife refuses and all that transpires in the book of Esther because of that, because it was against protocol to do this. What this hints to us, uh, and for anybody living in that time period, would scream to them is this. This feast was a setting of sensuality and debauchery. This was not just any old party. This was giving in to all fleshly appetites. He calls then for these golden vessels to be brought in by his servants. And that might sound like just the whim of a drunken man, someone who's a little tipsy and and has this idea, let's go ahead and do this. But really, it, it should be understood as something far more than that. He must have been considering this for a significant amount of time. Because those were not the only vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, had taken from the myriad countries that he had destroyed or overtaken. Nebuchadnezzar had taken these vessels, but he had taken many others. They were all in his storehouse. Belshazzar specifically targeted these vessels. He knew exactly where they were and exactly where to send his servants to go grab these vessels and bring them to this party, this feast. And Belshazzar also knew, as we're going to come to find out from Daniel's words in a few moments, Nebuchadnezzar's supernatural experience with God, the God who stood behind these vessels, and how that God had intervened in his life in multiple ways, and how eventually Nebuchadnezzar finally learned his lesson, responded, and began to at least acknowledge, worship, and honor that one true God. Belshazzar knew all of this, yet he rejected it. And in his arrogance and his pride, he sought to publicly repudiate this God by a deliberate act of blasphemy, taking something that's holy and sacred and defaming it and throwing it through the mud. And so his nobles join in with him, perhaps not really knowing why he was doing what he was doing, but of course you're going to follow whatever the king says, and they don't care what vessels they use to drink this wine, but all of them join in to use these sacred vessels to toast the false gods and their idols, which no doubt were surrounding them in that hall at that very moment. The vessels they used, remember, were supposed to be holy vessels consecrated only for God's use, according to God's instruction in God's temple, in God's city, by God's people in Jerusalem. And what does he do? He uses them at a debauched party, to toast his idols. Because Belshazzar, we find out, considered nothing to be sacred except perhaps himself. But the Bible is very clear that God says he will not be mocked. If you seek to defy him to his face, he will call you on it sooner or later. A person cannot flaunt open defiance against the living God and walk away from it unscathed. God was not impressed in the slightest with Belshazzar or his defiance. And we read this, then suddenly a finger of a human hand appeared and it wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And then everything unfolds in rapid succession. But notice before we get to this hand writing on the wall and what it means, Nebuchadnezzar commits three other sins against God. Not only does he desecrate that which is sacred, he also refuses to learn the lesson of humility that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had eventually learned. We see this in verses 17 to 22. And it may be helpful just to recollect here, the word father in this context does not mean biological father necessarily. So Nebuchadnezzar was not his biological father. In this context, it means his illustrious predecessor, his his forerunner, 
We know from archaeology, and the Bible also tells us about many of these individuals as well, that there were several other leaders of Babylon, kings or emperors of Babylon, between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, but none of them lasted very many years because they kept trying to kill each other. And then finally we get to Nabonidus, who is Belshazzar's father, but he was away, and Belshazzar is ruling Babylon at this moment. Daniel eventually is brought before the king, and this is what Daniel says to Belshazzar after Belshazzar offers him gifts if he can interpret this writing on the wall. He says, you can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. We see that theme of God's sovereignty, which is throughout this entire book, we see it coming up again and again in every chapter. Because of the high position that God gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. He had absolute, complete, utter power. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Here, pride means something like this. A person, which is unfortunately the tendency of all of us, a person who is lifted up with pride is one who does not acknowledge that everything they have, everything they've accomplished, and everything they are is ultimately a gift from God. That's what pride is, saying, I did this myself. I am the master of my fate. I have accomplished these great deeds. That was Nebuchadnezzar's outlook, and it's our outlook as well. But because of this, and because he failed to acknowledge God who had given him everything, verse 21, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal, which we looked at last week in chapter 4. He lived like a wild donkey and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until seven years later, he finally acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them all whom he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. What is he saying to Belshazzar? You are just as culpable because you knew this story, you knew the truth of it, and you have not responded the way he eventually did. But let's pause for just a moment as we consider how he's refusing to learn this lesson of humility, and it may be helpful to understand a bit more about Belshazzar, because this is a, a very important passage in all of Daniel's book, but it's also an important passage historically for why we as Christians can trust the Bible. Many skeptics, as we've seen throughout this book so far, enjoy attacking the Bible, and Daniel is one of their favorite books to attack over the last several hundred years. And one of the greatest attacks against the trustworthiness of the Bible is this exact passage in Daniel chapter 5. Because according to archaeology, up until the 1850s, humanist modern scholars said, well, there is no king of Babylon named Belshazzar. We haven't seen a single inscription. There's no document naming him. This is a complete fabrication. So all of chapter 5 is made up. And these Christians are believing a false book because of it. But then there came a man in the 1850s who was doing some archaeology. He was a British archaeologist and explorer. And he unearthed six cylinders, and these cylinders had cuneiform writing across them, written by Nabonidus, the last known king 
of Babylon, and in it he names his son Belshazzar. And what we come to find out from that inscription and many others that we've since found out is this. Nabonidus was the last official king, yes, but he was also quite an eclectic man, and he liked to be a bit eccentric as well. And so he spent many of his last few years as king before the Medo-Persian Empire took over in his northern Arabia house or villa or whatever you want to call it. And he spent his time there and gave or entrusted the kingdom to his son Belshazzar who was technically second in the kingdom, but for all intents and purposes, had complete control in the capital city and the empire. And so it turns out yet once again that God's word shows itself to be completely accurate. Once again, the Bible shows itself to stand up even to the greatest scrutiny of human modern man and modern scholars. The reason this is so important is because the Bible is under consistent attack like this time after time after time. Skeptics refuse, unfortunately, to learn their lessons when, after every attack, the answer eventually comes, and that yet they continue to attack in other ways. No matter how many times the Bible is shown to be accurate, down to the last detail, skeptics will still attack at every opportunity. But we must learn the lesson, the lesson that actually Daniel tells us in verse 17. Remember, he did not accept the gifts from the king. He said, I'll tell you the inscription, but I'm not going to accept your gifts. There are two reasons for that. The first is this. The king had said, I will give to anyone who has the ability to tell me what this means. I will give to him all these riches and make him third greatest in the kingdom. Also note that he, he will make him third greatest, not second greatest. Why? Because Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second. So the greatest position he can give him is third place. But what does Daniel say? I don't want your gifts. You can keep them. Why? It's implied, but it's not explicitly stated in verse 17, but it's already been hinted at previously, because Daniel's gift is not natural. Daniel's gift to interpret this writing on the wall doesn't come from him. It's not because he's smarter than the other wise men, although apparently that was the case, we were told in chapter 1. It's not because he has more insight or knowledge, although he did have that too. That's not the source from which his ability to interpret this writing came from. It came from God. And so he was not going to accept this pagan, idolatrous king's gifts for a gift that actually came from God. What is, that, what is he doing there? He's saying, I'm going to acknowledge the source of this gift, and this is really an issue between man's word, the word of Belshazzar, and the word of God. And Daniel helps to teach us or exemplify to us this distinction and we'll see the contrast going back and forth between the two men. We'll see it in two other ways in a moment. But the verdict was clear. Belshazzar was not only to be judged by God, the living God, the only God, but he was also to be told to his face in the last hours of his life exactly why he was being judged and what was going to happen. Now that is a rare opportunity. We probably wouldn't want to call it a gift, but in a sense it is a gift. Because if you are told beforehand and you are warned, you still have an opportunity to turn. Will Belshazzar take the opportunity or will he ignore it? Belshazzar knew all that God had done for Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he still chose to blatantly insult and dishonor God. Not just privately, but publicly in front of the representatives of his entire empire. 
In an act of suicidal defiance, Belshazzar had decided to use God's sacred vessels for the purpose of idolatry. Now, it would be hard to imagine a more clear-cut breach of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. A commandment that I remind us applies to every human being, whether they claim to be a Christian or not. And every human being on Judgment Day will be called to account for that and God's other commands. Belshazzar had desecrated what was sacred. He had refused to learn humility. Thirdly, he worshipped false gods, verse 23. Daniel says, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. Daniel doesn't miss a trick. He walks in, he immediately knows what's going on. He's no fool. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and stone, which cannot see, hear, or understand. In the Bible, we are warned over and over again again, against idolatry. Why? Well, sometimes we're even warned in a mocking fashion, like in the book of Isaiah, which says, why would you get a piece of wood, put half of it in your fireplace, the other half you yourself carve into an idol that, yes, has these little eyes but can't see anything, has these little ears but can't hear anything, and then you put it up on the mantelpiece above where the fire is burning, and you bow down and you worship it, or you pray to it, or you burn incense to it. How foolish as human beings can we be? Why would you ever think such an idol could do the slightest thing for you? And that's what Daniel is saying to him. You have praised these false gods, which can do nothing for you. And now the one true God, the one that you considered you could just go ahead and slight and dishonor with impunity, he's going to say something to you now. Fourthly, he also failed to give honor to the true God. The the rest of verse 23. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. What a commentary on human existence. The one true God holds your life and all of your ways. He knows everything about you. He holds you in the palm of his hand. He knows who you are. Not just about you, but he, he is the one who actively keeps your heart beating. He is the one who actively allows you the next breath you take. And Belshazzar, he has given you more than almost any human being who's ever lived. And what did you do with it? You sought to defy him with the power and the gifts he had given you. And then we move to God's intervention. So what what is it that God has come to say? What is the message? Well, first of all, we see the act. The writing on the wall, verses uh, 5 to 7, in brief. Suddenly the finger of a human hand appeared and it wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Why near the lampstand? Because this was probably at night, it's dark, and unless you write near a lamp or some form of light, no one's going to see the writing on the wall. So this was done in in such a way that the people couldn't help but notice it. The king watches the hand as he writes. His face turns pale, he's so frightened that his legs become weak and his knees were knocking. Just a few moments ago, he was arrogant as could be. And God shows up. Not even fully God in the sense of God in even a human form, just a hand by God or by God's messenger. And that is enough to make this arrogant man 
completely weak and cowardly. The king then summons all of his wise men to try to figure out what it means, and none of them have the foggiest clue. That was God's act. But then we see God's instrument, Daniel, who's eventually called. So Daniel was brought before the king after either Belshazzar's wife or mother. We're not sure who she was exactly because the term can be used in multiple ways. Um, she says that there, there is this man, and you could bring him forward, and I'm sure he could tell you. But it strikes us, why would Belshazzar not know about Daniel? Or why would it have taken so much reminding to remember who Daniel was? Daniel had accomplished some of the greatest things in the history of the empire. He was, in essence, almost second in command of the entire empire under Nebuchadnezzar when the empire was at its zenith. How could you forget such a human being? And that he was still alive and well and one of your wise men. We see just how out of touch with reality Belshazzar is. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king says to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Here he just parrots what his mom or his wife or whoever the woman was told him. Belshazzar doesn't show much ingenuity or intelligence of his own through this whole episode. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. They couldn't explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing to tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But Daniel dismisses the king's offers. Why? One, because we've already seen the contrast between he realizes this is, this is much more going on than the king just wanting something interpreted. This is a fight, the fight of the ages, we might say, going all the way back to Genesis 3 between God's word and man's word. Which will you choose? Which will you trust? Human power or God's sovereign power. But there's a second reason. Daniel wants nothing to do with someone who so blatantly devalues the one true God. It was important for Daniel not only when he accepted gifts of power and prestige, but from whom he accepted them. Remember that Daniel had been renamed, his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Almost the exact same name as the king. With essentially the exact same meaning. So what that meant is as these two men faced each other, two men in Babylon with virtually the same name, with virtually the same meaning of name, and yet they had two diametrically opposed identities. Daniel had decided to follow the one true God, and Belshazzar had decided to defy him. Similar names, with similar pagan meanings, but Daniel stood true to his identity. He realized that his identity was based in who God was and who he was in light of that reality. Whereas Belshazzar wanted to do what all humanity wants to do, I will determine my own identity. I will determine my own meaning. And we see the folly of it in this episode. But then we see God's message, judgment, verses 24 to 30. This is the inscription that was given, meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, true to his word, then Belshazzar commanded. Daniel was clothed in purple, given a gold chain, 
placed around his neck. He was proclaimed third highest ruler in the kingdom. I can't help but wonder what Daniel did when he got back to his home. Probably ripped that golden thing off and that purple robe, threw it in the trash. Why? He knew what was coming. And how odd, isn't it, that Belshazzar is given this direct intervention by God. God is speaking to him. Here is what is about to happen, and it doesn't seem to phase him in the slightest. All right, I gave a royal decree, so I got to go ahead and reward you. Great job, Daniel. See you tomorrow. Let's get back to the drunken orgy. Doesn't phase him at all. And that night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Nearly 200 years before this, an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, called out the king by name who would take over Babylon. Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 2. He called it 200 years ago, prior to this event, by the inspiration of God. And it happened just like he said. Yet Belshazzar, even after being given this wonderful God intervention, which God did not owe him in the slightest. He's unperturbed. So what happened? Well, the Euphrates River actually flowed through the city of Babylon. It flowed under the walls of the city and out the other side. And so there was a constant fresh water source. And within the city, they had stores so that they could withstand a siege of up to 10 years with farmers' fields within the city walls so they could also grow new, fresh produce. No doubt this is part of the reason why Belshazzar and his lords are not at all concerned about the Medo-Persian army outside the gates. And yet, even though the walls were high and thick, even though it seemed impregnable, God was about to orchestrate something that is almost unique in military history. One of the greatest acts of military ingenuity in the history of warfare happened at this moment. The leader of the Medo-Persian army ordered them to build these massive ditches to dig them out and then in a single night he diverted the course of the entire Euphrates River away from the city so that he and his entire army could walk on the riverbed under the walls and take it over while everyone was sleeping and killing Belshazzar in his sleep. Within a few hours, the king would be dead. You see, the problem, part of the problem, was that Belshazzar had done a bit of calculation, a bit of mathematical formulations. This is, this is how he thought of God. He considered God, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, the sovereign God of the universe, he considered that God to be of zero value. Then God appears in a veiled form, gives him an inscription, allows Daniel to interpret it for him. And the clear message to Belshazzar is this. God's not impressed with you in the slightest. God has evaluated you. And he has determined that you are of zero value. And in a few hours, Belshazzar would become a corpse of absolutely no value to anyone. And yet, don't miss the fact God gave him several hours to repent. He failed to take it. God did not need to give him that time. 
He certainly didn't deserve to receive that extra time. And yet God graciously gave it to him and his thousand nobles and wives and concubines, all of whom knew the truth of Nebuchadnezzar and what God had done for him, and yet had continued to spurn this one true God. And they refused his last offer of mercy and grace and are destroyed. So what does this mean for us? This isn't just a cautionary tale. It's not just a nice bedtime story. I suppose it wouldn't be a very good bedtime story for children anyway, since everyone dies at the end. What can we learn from it? Well, if we were to compare ourselves to someone in this passage, we are most like Belshazzar. It's not a very pleasant thought, but we too, by our natural state, we desecrate what is sacred. We refuse to learn the lessons of humility before God. We too worship false gods. Yes, most of us, we might tap ourselves on the shoulder and think great things about ourselves because maybe we don't have a piece of wood or stone or precious metal on the mantelpiece at home that we actually bow down to or offer incense to, although some of us may. But our gods are usually not physical in that sense. But we bow down to our pocketbook, to our bank account, to power, to prestige, to human opinion, and many other idols of our time. And we too have failed to give the only true God his proper place and honor in our lives. We too have been weighed in the balance of God's just scales and found severely lacking. The message to us is the same. We cannot defy God with impunity, without severe cost. The ungodly, we are told in Psalm 1, verse 5, the ungodly are those who refuse to acknowledge God the way he should be acknowledged and honor him. The ungodly will not stand in the day of judgment. That's what God says. And so what this means is we too have a desperate need of God's intervention. And just like Belshazzar, we have received a moment of God's intervention. But much better than him, it's not just a hand writing an obscure text on the wall that we need interpreted. What have we been given? Yes, we've been given a text. It's not obscure. It's very clear. It's plain to read. Anyone can do it. It's been translated into more languages than any book in the history of mankind. But we've been given something far better than just a book. We've been given Jesus Christ, God in human form, who has intervened on our behalf. And we're told very clearly in John chapter 3, verse 18, by Jesus himself, he who believes in Jesus will not be condemned on the day of judgment. But whoever refuses to believe in him will be condemned. That's the litmus test. Will you respond to the intervention God has given? Or will you refuse it the way Belshazzar did with the intervention God gave him? In his day, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar had little light or knowledge or truth initially. Until God, in his patience, instructed Nebuchadnezzar over several years. Belshazzar had far more knowledge, far more light, and far more truth. And he was judged by God for his deliberate defiance and suppression of that truth. And that's our problem, too. It's not that we don't know the truth. It's not that there's not enough evidence. Our problem is that we suppress what we do know about God because we don't want to be accountable to him. If you're hearing this today then the good news is you've clearly been given more light even than Belshazzar was given. 
But if you refuse it, the judgment for you will be the greater, just as it was for him too. So please hear this. For Belshazzar, this situation and the judgment that was pronounced, it was terrifying. But it was nothing, nothing compared to what he was about to face in a few hours' time. Because then he wouldn't just have a few words on a wall. He'd be standing before the holy God. As God judged and evaluated every act, every word, every thought, every intention of his heart, from childhood to adulthood, put him in the scales of God's justice and judged him eternally. And we too, one day, will be evaluated according to that same holy standard. And you and I can't help but be found guilty on that day. And the judgment is eternal hell, and it is terrible. But there's a way out. It's Jesus. And if we submit to him and believe in him and confess our sins to him, then we can not have to face that judgment. You must trust Jesus. That means to turn like Belshazzar should have done from his unrighteousness, from his sin, from his rebellion, from his pride, and turn to Jesus and ask forgiveness and salvation from God alone. If you haven't done that yet, I hope you'll do that today. Now is the time. There's no better time to do it than now. I'd actually ask you this question. What would happen, or where would you be? Let me put it this way. Where would you be if you had died last night, like Belshazzar died in the night? Where would your soul be? We are told it is appointed unto men and women to die once. All of us have to face that final battle, death. And after that comes the judgment, the Bible says. Where would you be if you had died in the night? You would have to stand before God and he would judge and evaluate you according to his holy standard. How would you come out? If you trust only in yourself, in your own goodness or your own religiosity, you will come out the worse for it. But if you know Christ, if you've submitted to him, if you've asked his forgiveness, then you can be saved and then Christ stands on the other side of that ledger or of that scale and takes away your sin. Life is short. Death is sure. Judgment is coming and eternity is forever. That's what God's word tells us. Only those who submit themselves to God and his word in this life have any hope on that day of judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way. If you have not responded to Jesus and his intervention on your behalf, do so today before it's too late. Let us learn the lesson of this passage and Belshazzar before time runs out. Father, may we respond to your word appropriately. We pray this in your name. Amen. The music team is going to come to the front and lead us in a closing song before we finish our service. <clears throat> Let me just say this. After the service, if there's anyone here who would like to speak to myself or Pastor Ernest about what you've just heard, we'd love to sit down with an open Bible and show you from God's word how you can respond to Jesus and know where you will go when you die and what will happen at the judgment.
music team will now lead us. <laughs>